This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Monday the 15th of February. Hello, Coronacasters. Welcome back, Norman. We missed you so much last week. Oh, you did very well without me, I can tell you. I might go on another week's holiday. (laughs) Nope, you don't get to do that because while you were gone, um, stuff happened in Melbourne. So Melbourne's now in a five-day lockdown because of a hotel quarantine escape. And we need your wisdom on it, Norman. So basically what we've seen is there was an escape from hotel quarantine that's happened a couple of times in the last few weeks and months all over Australia. But unlike what happened in uh, Western Australia and Queensland, there it's led to more cases than just one or two or zero. So over the weekend, we've seen another few cases come out, um, a few more exposure sites being recommended that people who were there go and get tested and isolate. So the question is, is five days going to be enough for Victoria to bring this quarantine leak under control? I think from reports, it seems clear that for a, for a short period of time, the contact tracing, hesitate to use the words, um, lost the plot, but they got a bit behind. And it could be because it's a variant, but it could have conceivably happened with the Wuhan virus as well, is that it's a very infectious virus anyway, and you've had a bit of escape. And that's the problem that they're chasing a bit in Melbourne. And I think the, the tracing commander in Victoria, who does excellent work, I think probably was premature the other day when he said they're on top of it. You know, I don't think they were on top of it that day. And it's just got a bit out. And the question is how much virus there is out there. There's positive sewage from various places, including Coburg, where interestingly there was this private event where there's, it seems to have been a bit of a spreading event. How much of a spreading event we've, remains to be seen. And yet again, we see with this virus that it's cluster-based, that you get clusters. So you've got a cluster situation in the Holiday Inn, and then it goes to other areas where you can get further subclusters, if you like, developing. And the question is just to what extent you've got other clusters going and the extent to which they're tying them down. And what's really good news is that a lot of Victorians are coming forward for testing. Um, they now seem to be on top of the contact tracing, at least according to the press conference yesterday. And they're, the, the people who are becoming positive are already in quarantine, which is really good news. They're not out and about, although it's relatively recent that they've moved into quarantine. So you don't know backtracking the extent to which they were spreading the virus before they became positive. So my guess is that I can't really guess because we've got no inside information. But what to watch for is just how many new cases develop each day. So if you remember from Western Australia, Queensland, uh, particularly when they went to short, sharp lockdowns, there were zero cases each day, which made people say, well, why did they bother doing it? Here there are not zero cases each day, but now cases coming forward. question is what happens today? But if there are more cases each day, particularly new venues, then they are going to be a bit anxious about letting this go uh, on Wednesday. So we'll just need to wait and see, unfortunately. There's no crystal ball gazing here. You mentioned just now this idea of a short, shorter incubation period, which is something that we've sort of, that it's language that's been used almost every time there's been 
an outbreak. So we heard it in South Australia and in Sydney last year as well. Is there any evidence that this time there truly is a shorter incubation period? Looking at the international evidence, no, it's more that you, the, the, you're much more likely to spread it to other people. The R0, the reproduction number, is more like 3.4 than 2.5 with the Wuhan version of the virus. The number of people that you're likely to infect if, if it was going unchecked. Which is an artificial number because if you look at, say, the Crossroads Motel, the R0 there was, I don't know, guessing, but you know, 15, maybe 15 people or something like that. Uh, because it spreads in clusters, the R0 is, is an average when you can get into a super spreading event and the R0 becomes really quite large and scary. And with this new variant, presumably even larger and scarier. And then you get people emerging probably with a lot of virus on board early on who help the super spreading to occur. And that makes it look, look as though the incubation period is shorter. It's just that I think they've got a viral load that develops faster rather than the, the incubation period being shorter. Like with other times that we've seen a short, sharp lockdown, there's, they've copped a bit of flack over this idea of a five-day quarantine. Is it an overreaction? I don't believe it is. I mean, I get trolled every time I say it, but the, the fact is you've got this new variant around. There's increasing information from Britain that it's more virulent, that it, there may be um, higher hospitalisation and maybe even a higher death rate with it. Still uncertain. So I, I don't think it is. And I think that it's just a question of getting things under control and letting the contact tracers get on top of it really quickly. I know it's really damaging and it's been a damaging weekend for the restaurant trade in Victoria with the Valentine's Day weekend and also the Lunar New Year. But it's an important thing to do. And, you know, if you go back to the middle of last year, if Victoria had done this kind of thing probably for about two weeks, just as it was spreading in the Northwest Corridor, they wouldn't almost certainly have had a lockdown lasting well over 100 days. So we have a really special guest joining us on CoronaCast today, Professor Dominic Dwyer, who was one of the 10-person team from the World Health Organization who was sent to China to explore the origins of the coronavirus. Dominic, thank you so much for making time to talk to us. Uh, it's a pleasure, Tegan and Norman. So, Dominic, obviously the reason we wanted to bring you on CoronaCast today was to talk about your work in China. You were one of the WHO team that went to China more than a year after the coronavirus first emerged in Wuhan to see if you could figure out the origins of the coronavirus. Can you take us right back to the beginning of the planning phase of this trip and what sort of pre-planning you did ahead of time? It started back in the middle of last year when the WHO, a couple of people went and spoke to the Chinese saying that, look, the World Health Association had decided in conjunction with the WHO to investigate this and that, you know, they would like China to participate in this. So that there was the terms of reference and so on were set up back in July. They then selected a team and we started meeting, I think, in around September or, or October to plan, well, what sort of information would you want to try and sort out the origins of an outbreak. I mean, it's nothing to do with assessing how well China responded or how poorly China responded or, you know, the ins and outs of the political situation, uh, but it was really about trying to focus on the origins. What was happening with those first cases in December and what might have been happening, you know, even in the few weeks before December, if you like. Uh, so we came up with a, a series of, of questions and then, Part of the report is generating a kind of phase two studies to sort of sort out what will be the long-term ongoing studies to continue to sort out the source of, of SARS-CoV-2. 
So what data did you want and what data did you end up getting? Yeah, there's been a lot of sort of media interest about Chinese not supplying data and all of that sort of thing. And of course, much of that is driven by political agendas in all sorts of different countries. But what we requested was really a review of the sort of surveillance data for a range of diseases. So that included Chinese influenza surveillance data, remembering, of course, that China's actually got quite good influenza surveillance data because of their experience with bird flu and some of the other unusual influenzas that have occurred over the last few years. Uh, We also wanted to look at uh, mortality and some morbidity data from China, but particularly focusing down into Hubei province and then down into Wuhan, then down into the districts within Wuhan. Remembering Wuhan's a city of you know, 12 million people or so. We also asked them to go back and review through their hospital records what sort of cases might have been like COVID-19 that had appeared before they started notifying in early December 2019. In other words, were there unrecognised cases over the previous couple of months? We also had another group that uh, I was also involved in looking at the genetics of the viruses that were being sequenced, not just from the patients, um, but from the environment um, and from animal uh, products and frozen products and so on, and trying to put all of that together. And then the third part of the study was around the animal origins, what sort of animal testing had they done? Uh, was there anything in the illegal wildlife trade that they could tell us about? So the, the, the work fell into those three groups. So you've gone and you've asked for this, this data. Did you get what you needed to be able to do your job? We got an enormous amount of data. I think people have sort of probably focused too much on the data that wasn't supplied. Uh, but in fact, the data supplied was enormous. And for example, uh, when we asked them to go back and look at sort of unusual pneumonias and stuff like that in a couple of months before December 2019, you know, they went and reviewed 76,000 medical records in 230 odd health facilities in Wuhan, uh, you know, and showed us these results. And were there atypical pneumonias? Well, well, look, there were, yeah. So they identified in the end around 90-odd cases between October and December 2019. That could have been COVID-like. And then one of their expert committees uh, reviewed them and felt that they weren't COVID-related and also collected blood on them in January this year and tested them for SARS CoV-2 antibodies, which were all negative. So the assumption, is, you know, from their point of view is that if, that these weren't COVID. I mean, it, it's tricky because, for example, uh, antibody tests done on blood, you know, up to 15 months later, you know, it's hard to know how reliable those sort of tests are. But, but bearing that in mind, it certainly showed that there didn't appear to be large numbers of atypical pneumonia cases in that period of time before they started notifying cases in December. You've been quoted as saying you're disappointed you didn't get the raw data on patient information. I mean, a lot of this does depend on trust and politics come in here. I mean, it's not as if it's like a you know, a nuclear investigative commission going into Iran where you're trying to dig up stuff that people are trying to hide. You, you want trust to be to the fore here and there's not a lot of trust going on. I mean, just what are your observations there, given what you didn't learn, you know, and how close you are to finding out where it might have come from? I mean, for, for example, just one example is it seems to be taken on trust that 
that didn't happen in the from it didn't escape from the virology institute when in fact the virology institute with which is a very good virology institute was doing gain of function tests on coronavirus only a year or two before yeah look uh, that's exactly right i mean the issue of trust and cooperation is is an important one and my experience both with, with sars way back and 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 this one as well is that once you start having the meetings directly with your kind of peer group you know everyone's kind of on the same length yes there's some complexities uh, uh, about political interference and everybody's got an agenda the Chinese, the Americans, uh, everybody's got a kind of political agenda and that does make it difficult and it makes it particularly difficult for them, for, for the scientists and so on. I, I mean, the data that we had asked for that seems to have got a lot of airplay was was we did say, well, look, you know, you've reported the 174 cases of COVID in December and we know that half of those had no contact with the Huanan market the big wet market in, in Wuhan, uh, and the other half did. So what is it about those 174 that could be teased out further? And so we did ask them for what we call a line listing of cases of those 174. So we were keen on seeing the line listing data uh, so that we could see what questions had been asked, see what new questions might have been asked as time went on, and, and maybe suggest different types of analyses that might be done on it. Now, yes, we asked for that. They gave us some of it, but not all of it. But uh, I think the point is that we have the opportunity to continue to work with this and to continue to ask for it. You know, we, we of course, express some concern of, well, you know, we'd like to see it, and they say, well, we can't give it to you. Uh, you know, I, I, one doesn't know whether they won't give it or they can't give it. What's the hottest theory then, just before we finish? I mean, what, what's the hottest theory that you're exploring moving forward? Look, I think the hottest theory is the one about transmission from bat to some sort of in, intermediate animal, be it a pangolin or a ferret badger or a cat or whatever, into the population. Whether that occurred first at the Huanan market or whether it had occurred beforehand is hard to tell. You know, and that's the history of most of these coronaviruses. You know, they're all related viruses, all present in bats, and we know they jump across into animals and to humans who've seen it before. That's clearly the most important one. So if you're going to design further work, that would be the most likely scenario. Now, other things like the laboratory leak and that sort of stuff, look, we uh, in, in questioned uh, the laboratory, went to the laboratory, talked to them about it. Sure, we only got answers to questions we asked rather than doing a forensic examination of the laboratory but that's not what our purpose was and that's a completely different set of skills but you know you end up having to look at the various hypotheses ascribe some sort of uh, likelihood to them and work on the ones that look to be the most likely. What was the tensest moment and what was the most pleasing moment of the trip? The tensest moment and there are a number of them was around some of the discussions about the interpretation of the data. You know, we had different views on what certain data meant or we wouldn't ascribe a kind of reliability to some of the data in the sense that just because your influenza illness surveillance data doesn't tell you that anything was circulating, say, in November or December, doesn't mean that it wasn't. I think the pleasing part of it was actually the amount of data that the Chinese 
allowed us to work through with them. I mean, it is a joint mission. Uh, and certainly the WHO representatives on the team, uh, and, you know, I'm not employed by WHO, but the WHO representatives said they had never seen any of this data before. They've been trying to get data, you know, for, for the last year or so, and they were very pleased to see the data they got. So I think that was a real highlight and, and has perhaps been overshadowed by, you know, argy-bargy over what was supplied and what wasn't. Professor Dominic Dwyer, thanks so much for joining us on CoronaCast. That's a pleasure. Thanks, Tegan. Thanks, Norman. Well, that was interesting, Tegan, and probably a less dramatic account than we've seen in both the local and international press. Yeah, but still a lot of questions that haven't got satisfying answers yet. Not Dominic's fault, just an observation. Yeah, and we may never find the answer. So that's it for today. That's right. If you've got a question or a comment, keep sending them in abc.net.au slash coronacast and click on ask a question. Make sure you mention coronacast so that we can find it. And we'll see you tomorrow. See you then. Mm-hmm.